Good morning. Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. It is truly a privilege to gather together and to look into God's Word. I was so blessed by our Sunday school this morning and the opportunity that we have to have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with God first and then fellowship with one another. And so we're here to fellowship around God's Word this morning. And you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're in the process of working our way through the book of Romans right now. My messages. And we looked at the last part of Romans 1 the last time that I was that I preached. And we looked at the fact that God has been revealed. And that's particularly pointed out in verse 18 of chapter 1. Sorry. The wrath of God is revealed in, in verse 18. And then in verse 20, talks about the invisible things from Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so Paul lays out and begins to lay out an argument that the people, that there's evidence for God in the things that are made, and that people who see those things are without excuse of seeing who He is. But beginning with that message, I told you as we looked at an overview of Romans, the book of Romans, that there's a progression that Paul is continually moving through a progression as he shares the book of Romans. He writes it. And I have found it a real struggle to stay, to find a way to communicate that progression to you as I bring each message. And so I want to go back and just give you a little bit of what I shared in that introduction from Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 regarding the progression that we'll be looking at part of today. So we're, we started that progression there in the middle of Romans chapter 1, and now we're moving towards a goal. And that, that progression is that Paul is showing the state of humanity without God and that God has revealed Himself in three different ways and then humanity's response to that revelation. And so all, all three of those things are happening as Paul moves through these first couple chapters of Romans. So in the, fir the first one, the first thing that he shows is, is God revealing Himself through creation and then rather than worship Him as a result, humanity wants to remove Him from their knowledge. And God releases them to the degenerative process that happens as a result of being released from, or them pushing Him away, pushing His knowledge away. And then the second thing, which is to, what we'll be looking at today, is that God reveals Himself through universal morality written on our hearts. And... That begins in verse 32 of chapter 1 with a recognition of a need for judgment. And, and in judging others, we condemn ourselves. And this sense of judgment is based on that God-given law that's written on the hearts of humanity. 
And then the third thing is through his law and through the Jews, through the Jewish people who, to whom he gave his law. And the law was to inform their knowledge of him and, and to show them their sinfulness. And he said that if they would keep the law, that he would be honored. And we see just a little snippet of that in the Queen of Sheba when she came to see Solomon. She said, There's such a. Where on earth could I find such a, a great God who has given such great laws to make a people like this? But in reality, the Jewish nation brought, instead of bringing praise to God, he was blasphemed. That God was blasphemed because of the failure of people to keep the law of God. And so God reveals Himself in those three ways, and each time humanity rejects Him, goes their own way. And then the conclusion of that comes in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And we'll touch that just a little bit. But, but Paul's... So we're, we're coming into the middle of this progression of argument that Paul has. And I want to keep your minds connected with that progression because there are things in the text today that if we would take them standing alone and pull the verse out and say, we could come to a belief on the basis of this verse that's not really what Paul's trying to say. So it's important that we understand and, and stay with that progression. And I'm going to point out the conclusion, something about the conclusion during the message today that helps us to understand part of what Paul is saying. So I'm going to read now, beginning at Romans chapter 1, verse 32, and we'll read to verse 16 of chapter 2. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. For we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches and goodness, riches and of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul that doeth evil to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. We'll stop reading there. So, I concluded the last message where I was talking about knowing God and then the depravity that man went into because he rejected the knowledge of, of 
revealed God. And I, I made a statement that the knowledge of God brings us face to face with two things. One of those things is knowledge, and the other thing is, ju- not knowledge, the one thing is worship, and the other thing is judgment. And so we're faced with a question about worship and a question about judgment whenever the knowledge of God is presented to us. And I made this statement about judgment. And we're going to be looking at judgment fairly heavily today. So that is the word in focus. The word in focus is judgment. I've been, for those of you who haven't been here, I've been doing a word in focus or a word that I've looked at, what, how it's used and how it's presented in the New Testament. But here's, what, here's a statement that I made at the end of the message. God is righteous. Therefore, judgment is coming on evil. And we see that in verse 32 of this chapter, of chapter 1. We have been given choice, so we must also judge. As we know God, so we judge. If we judge him a fool, we will be the fool. If we grow in knowledge of him, we will judge more and more righteously. So... I want to break down this word judgment a little bit and think about it. The passage here, the first part of the passage here, it says, Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever be thou of you that judges another. And that aligns itself with what Jesus said, Matthew 7, 1 to 5, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And so what Jesus and what Paul are both talking about here are condemnation, judgment of condemnation, brought on other people. And so when we look at someone else and we see what they're doing and we say, they're condemned. It's saying, judge not. You're inexcusable who judges. That's what Jesus said, judge not. Paul said, you're inexcusable who judges another. So it's a judgment of condemnation. But I said that we must judge. So... Let's push into that just a little bit. This is Jesus again. John 7 this time. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not because of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Same words, same Greek words. So here's Jesus saying that these people should make a judgment, a righteous judgment. So Jesus is presenting in this passage in John 7, he's presenting that his word, his teaching is from God. That's what he's giving to the people. And those who, whose will is to do God's will will have discernment. Now that's important to, to think about. Those whose will, 
whose conviction, whose desire, the inner part of us that drives what we do, the will of a person, who's the, the person whose will is set on doing God's will will have discernment. And then he puts forward this dilemma. You see, the Sabbath law said that they were supposed to refrain from work. But the law also said that circumcision was to be on the eighth day. So if a baby was born on Friday, then for the law to be fulfilled, he would need to be circumcised on the Sabbath day. But that would have been work. So that was a dilemma. And they judged that circumcision was more important than that extra work. So they made a judgment. And Jesus said then, now I want you to make a decision between circumcision and, a, and healing a man. Now the law didn't say anything about that you couldn't heal a man on the Sabbath. It didn't say that you had to heal a man on the Sabbath. It didn't say that you had to heal anyone. But what mattered to God? Jesus was showing them that they needed to make judgments not of condemnation, but judgments of moral truth, judgments about moral rightness. And this pattern follows through the New Testament. So you'll see places where we're told not to judge, and, and pretty much every time that we're told not to judge, it's in relation to bringing condemnation on other people. But we are told to judge, and actually in this passage, we're directed to judge even though it doesn't say it directly but if you want a direct passage where we're told to judge another direct passage where we're told to judge first corinthians 11 says judge for yourselves is it comely that a woman pray with her head uncovered so same word um a call to us to make decisions not of condemnations but moral judgments of right and wrong but those moral judgments of right and wrong are not to be focused on other people. They're to be focused on ourselves. Jesus was saying in this passage, he was saying, believe in me, believe that my teaching is from God. And you need to look at yourself and you need to make the judgment. You need to make the righteous judgment. You need to apply this to yourself. And righteous judgment I don't know what all that means, but part of what that means is seeing things as God sees them. So we need to see the truth as God sees it so that we see it right. And that's what it means to judge right, rightly or righteously, is to see it right. And God sees it right. And so in our judgments, we need to not see what we think is right, but what God thinks is right. So there's this thread through this passage here in Romans 2 about the judgment of God. And I'm just going to cover a few of those things before we get into the meat of the passage. Verse 2 says that the judgment of God is according to truth. So it is the way things are. God judges things the way they are in reality. Verse 5, it says that the judgment of God is going to be revealed. There's a time coming when the violations against God and, and the violations against right will be 
will receive due consequence. There's the negative aspect of consequence, John. (laughs) Verse 5, it is righteous or it is right. Everything will be according to what is deserved. God will not judge anyone in a way that they do not deserve. Verse 11, it's without respect of persons. It's not partial. He doesn't judge this way with this person because of who they are or where they were born or what family they grew up in or what church they were part of and this person over here because they were something different. It's without partiality. And verse 16, it is by Jesus Christ. And I want to touch on that more at the end of the message. What that means, it is by Jesus Christ. So in, in verse 32 of chapter 1, going into this thing of judgment, it says that we recognize that the judgment of God is coming on the people who do these things. And they not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Humanity apart from God loves its sin. And so we're starting on that premise into this idea of judgment. But the fact that we judge actually shows that we have no excuse for our sin. That humanity has no excuse for its sin because our judgment of others demonstrates that we know how we should act. And so when you judge someone, I'm not saying that you should, I'm saying when you do, if you do, you are demonstrating that you know how you yourself should act. And so it takes away your excuse for not acting properly. And yet, we violate it. Humanity violates it. We know that we should not tell a lie. And yet, I dare say that there are very few in this room who have never told a lie. And I am one of those people who has told a lie. I violated the law of God. But I knew that it was wrong for others to lie to me when I did that. And when people lied to me, I accused them of lying. And it took away my excuse. So when I judge, I take away my excuses. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. But God's judgment is according to what is true. And so He will look at the way things really are. And He will look at the person who told the lie. And He will look at me and He will say, you both have lied. And my motivation for lying won't matter. The fact that I was thought I was trying to make things better won't matter. The fact is that I violated what God told me to do, regardless of my motivation, He's going to judge me on the basis of what is true. And how do I think, if God's judgment is according to truth, how do I think that I'm going to escape His judgment? I'm not going to be able to. Because He knows everything. Don't you know 
verse 4, that God is giving us time to repent. His goodness in not bringing down the judgment that we deserve upon us is giving us time to repent and to turn to Him. And for all those people out there, for me, for all those people out there who have broken God's law, He is giving them time. His goodness is giving them time to repent. But verse 5, if I harden myself, if I'm unwilling to be honest with myself, if I harden myself, I simply build up a store of punishment. That's all I'm doing, is building up a store of punishment for myself. Against the day of wrath, when God will render, verse 6, to every man according to his deeds. And this word deeds here in the Greek means our occupation or what we have accomplished. It's most often, out of the 176 times that it's used in the New Testament, it's most often used as work. The things that I've done. So when someone asks you what happens after I die, we'll stand before God and we'll give account for the things we have done. And then it says there's two types of rewards. Two types of people and two types of rewards. Verse 7, there'll be the type of people who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality and their reward, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey, and I found it fascinating what that combination of words there was in the Greek, which this is, this is one good representation of it, contentious and do not obey, but another good representation of it would be the origin from which their actions come resists belief. So, the thing that is causing them to act, what is causing them to act, the inner being, you could say even the will, their will resists belief in God. But to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, the reward, indignation, and wrath. And then he goes on to say the condition of the person In verse 9, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I was going to put the whiteboard up here and I forgot to, so maybe I'll just do a hand illustration. It's pretty simple. So imagine that there's a line between good and evil. There's a line. So in in a sense, that's what judgment is. It's a determination between good and evil and evil. And we know that God has said things, some things are good and some things are evil. We were created to be good. When God created us, He created us and said that it was very good. But when we sinned, we broke through that barrier between good and evil and placed ourselves on the side of the line where evil was. The problem is, 
that we were created to be good and we know that we should be good. And so when we place ourselves on the side of evil, we place ourselves in a condition that we know is not right. And that brings tribulation and anguish to our soul because we know that we are not as we should be or what we could be. And we have a longing within us to be what we should be. And he says of the one who does good, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. There's joy in being and doing what we are to be and do. For there is no respect of persons with God. He is going to, he is going to give that reward. He is going to give that um, glory, honor, and peace or tribulation and anguish impartially as we have done, as we have lived. I'd like to ask those who are prepared for special singing to come forward. And I especially want you to note verse 2 of the song that they'll be sharing. Master, the tempest is raging, the billows are tossing high. The sky is overshadowed with blackness, no shelter or help is mine. Carest thou not let me perish, how canst thou lie Moment so madly is threatening, a grave in the angry heat. The winds and the waves shall obey my will. Peace is Whether the wrath of the storm toss sea, or demons, or man, or whatever it be, no water can swallow the ship. The master of ocean and earth and skies They all shall sweetly obey my will Peace be still, peace be still They all shall sweetly obey my will Peace, peace be still Master with anguish of steel Sweetly obey my 
Thank you all for sharing that. Many of us are very blessed with lives that have been free from a lot of a lot of tumult. But we don't live in a world that is without difficulty, struggle, challenge, and even overwhelming waves of things that we don't know how to handle and we can't don't know what to do with. And that song depicts people who are in a situation out on the sea that they can't do anything about. And we could take some of these verses here. We could look at verse 7, and we could say, who by patient continuance and well-doing, we're going to gain our salvation. We could look at verse 10. Glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good. So if I just do good, that's if I, if I try, if I put everything into doing good. But you see, this is where that conclusion, that movement towards a conclusion comes in. Because let's look at chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all going out of the way. They are, all, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And so, the song says in the second verse that the answer to the tribulation and anguish that's brought on as a result of our sin is only possible with the Savior who can whisper, peace, peace be still. Who can bring an end to that tribulation and anguish. And there's a little clue there in what I read to you about the different meaning that can be put, drawn from the idea of the contentious and do not obey the truth. Because humanity in its own, in its fallen condition the, the thing that drives them, that drives their actions, 
resists belief in God. And so humanity, when confronted with the challenge to do good, what it does with this line between good and evil, it judges other people and it says, this person is below me, he is evil, and I am good because I'm not as he is. And so therefore I am good because I'm not as he is. But the problem is that that's not how God sees it because God sees what the person that is judging has actually done. And his judgment is without partiality. And so we all are facing, maybe have faced, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. And my soul has been faced with tribulation and anguish because of my evil. And there's only, there's only through a Savior that we can be taken out of that cycle of evil. For as many as have sinned, verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. So God's judgment takes into account the opportunity afforded each individual. Those who have those who know the law will be judged by the law and those who have not heard the law will perish without the law. There's no basis for judgment without choice and law. So choice makes us moral or it gives us the opportunity to make a moral decision And law bounds or gives perimeters to those morals. Verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Ah, so we need to to be justified, we need to do the law. James helps us with this one. But if we have respect of persons, ye commit sin. That's on the basis, the verse before that quotes, the second greatest commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If thou hast respect of persons, thou commit sin and are convinced of the law as a transgressor. So if you just have respect of persons, you transgress the law. You're not a doer of the law if you have respect of persons. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if he, now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So what that means is that for he that said, for the authority that placed the law into existence, when you violate on one point, you have violated him. And therefore you are guilty before him as if you'd violated all. For when the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. So, how many of you know what the Nuremberg trials are? 
few of you. There are the trials following World War II in Europe where Nazi members, members of the Nazi party, were tried for their involvement in the Holocaust and other war crimes. And the defense that some of them used in those trials was that we were following the commands of our superiors. So they were following law set in place by the authorities that were over them. And so they were not responsible, so they were saying we're not responsible for what we did because we were simply following what we were told to do. We were... The court said no. There is a higher law. A law that through which we understand how we ought to treat one another. And that's the law you have violated. You didn't violate German law. You violated something that's larger than German law, something that's, that's worldwide. It's an understanding of how we ought to treat one another. And because you violated that, you are guilty. It's a law that's, that's greater than human majority because the Germans as a whole were their law, their majority, or their strength, their civil power was behind the actions that were taken. They're saying this law is bigger than all of that. And I do not believe, I believe this is a very good argument for the existence of God because I don't believe you can logically hold that argument without invoking God, a higher lawgiver to put that law into place. But it goes deeper than that. And it's in what he's saying here in this verse. When they do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, so they don't have the written law of God, but they are a law unto themselves. Or in other words, they are establishing the reality of God's law through how they either, and this is in the next verse, accuse or excuse one another. So by the way that they determine which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And so those, the, the court or the officials at the court at the Nuremberg trials were saying that you should have had a conscience that it was wrong to do this. You, we know that you have a conscience that it was wrong to do this, and so you're guilty. Because that conscience is broader than... And so they were creating a law. They were a law unto themselves, even though they were not Christian in the sense of following the law of God, yet they were a law unto themselves. And that law written in their hearts is giving testimony by the way that they accuse and excuse one another, the way they judge, it gives testimony that they are without excuse, the evidence of the law of God. And out of that, this is how the believer, the unbeliever, this, this conscious, inner conscious consciousness or conscience of the law of God is how the unbeliever knows how that you as a Christian should live. They know what you should and shouldn't do. How do they know that? The unbelievers that say that the Inquisition should never have happened, how do they know that? 
because they have a law written in their hearts that tells them that those who profess to know a God who knows everything and is good would not do that kind of thing. So that's how the unbeliever knows how we should live. This is what tells every civilization that theft and murder, etc., are wrong, and they don't allow it in their civilization. Now, there could be some exceptions to that, but that's generally every civilization has always said theft and murder are wrong. And even those who steal believe that it's wrong for others to steal from them. So they justify their theft, but then don't think that others should take from them. We can be so complicated. This is where judgment comes from. But humanity from Christ, and I said this early, earlier, has turned judgment the wrong way. Instead of identifying this truth, and turning it on ourselves, we turn it on other people to make ourselves feel better and look better. And so we turn judgment the wrong way as humanity. So this moral conscience, instead of, us, instead of it drawing us to God by looking at ourselves and seeing our, how we have fallen short before Him, we turn it on other people and justify ourselves on that basis. And so instead of finding God, we move away from Him. There's two things that I believe are very important about this law written on every heart that identifies that there is good and there is evil and that they are determinable between the two. The first one is a measure of the image of God is present in every human. Every person was created in the image of God. And this gives evidence to that. The law of God written in their heart is part of the image of God embedded in their lives. And then secondly, secondly, as we live the gospel and share the gospel, there's an identification with the hearts of all men that the truth is being presented. And so it may seem like that as we share the truth with people, as we share Christ with people, that it's not doing any good. But you can know from what the Scripture says that there's an identification in their heart that what I'm being told is true. So God's going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The life and teachings of Jesus identify who we are. He exposes what's really happening inside of us. Who, hap- who hated Jesus when he was here? It was the people who wanted to hide what was really going on in their hearts, who wanted to cover it up. Those are the people who really hated him. When I was in my early 20s, <clears throat> I started to read the Gospels and open up my mind to what they were really saying. But I found something different than what I expected. I found myself. And what I found was a person who was full of pride and selfishness and who was holding my desire for wealth and position above the position of God in my life. God judged my secrets by Jesus Christ. The life and teachings of Jesus are where we need to point people to find themselves. 
and to find the answer to themselves. Who were the people who loved Jesus when He was here? It was the people who knew that they had a need and He offered them hope. And that was the next thing I found, was the hope that Jesus offered. Why does Paul say, according to my gospel? I don't know how that I have a complete answer for that, but I want to point back again to the fact that Paul is using this letter to present the gospel in a practical way to the Romans. And he wants to share with them that he's presenting the gospel in the body of what he's sharing, not in one specific chapter or one specific verse, but rather in the body of what he is sharing, they find the gospel. And he defends his position about the gospel in other places in the New Testament by saying that, you know, no matter who brings another gospel to you, there is no other gospel. And so he's not saying that this is some other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think he's calling them to recognize that he is sharing with them the revelation of Christ and that they can trust what he's saying if, as they look at the body of what he is sharing with them. So may God help us as people. I, I was really convicted about judgment as I read through that. And especially one of the things that I was convicted about was judgment of evil thoughts. It is so easy for me to ascribe motives to actions that other people make or do. By the grace of God, I want to avoid that. Um, may God help us to be very careful and wise in not judging other and condemning other people, but rather in judging right and wrong and living out the gospel. And then also, I'm just really challenged and fascinated by this idea of the this inner law written on the hearts of every person. It's just it's it's thrilling to me to think that everywhere and all people have something within them that can connect them with Jesus if they can but see Him. So may we be also inspired to share Christ with people in a way that they can are able to see and come to the truth. God bless.